This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Tuesday, February 20th. International Development Minister Ahmed Hussein visited the Gaza border. And just ahead, he tells us how catastrophe looms if more aid trucks don't start moving into the Gaza Strip. Plus, inflation is inching closer to that 2% sweet spot. Does that mean an interest rate cut is around the corner? And the firm at the center of the Arrive Can controversy is resisting calls to testify in front of MPs. Could the official opposition make them? We begin in Gaza, where aid groups warn the level of desperation has reached unprecedented levels. The World Food Program says it has stopped food deliveries to the north. They say it's no longer safe after their convoys were faced with gunfire and violence. The entire region is on the brink of famine. Food and safe water are extremely scarce. Most of the population is sheltering in Rafah, where Israel is threatening to launch a military offensive. Minister of International Development, Ahmed Hussein, joins me now. Minister, welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. So you were in Rafah today on, on the Egypt side. I, I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of what you saw uh, at this border crossing. I was uh, both in Rafah and in El Arish, which is the main logistical hub uh, for receiving uh, international humanitarian assistance uh, into Egypt towards Gaza. Uh, at the Rafah border crossing, I was able to see uh, hundreds and hundreds of trucks uh, stationed there, uh, not being able to go in. Uh, trucks uh, full of food and medicine and other much-needed essential supplies. Uh, the 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 situation is very dire. I was able to meet humanitarian and health workers who came from Gaza into into the Egyptian side of Rafa to update me on the situation on the ground, and they are very very concerned about the situation on the ground. Uh, I was able. I was also able to get briefings and see for myself the the uh, sheer amount of uh, backlogs and and number of trucks, uh, too num- numerous to count, to, that are waiting to get in. So the pace of uh, access into Gaza, the, the volume of trucks is very low, and uh, I was able to see that for myself. And, of course, this is something that's very troubling uh, to the humanitarian workers on the ground who are in Gaza, who, uh, who know the extent of the need of the population, and they were able to brief me on the dire state of affairs on the ground. So, so on that point, the World Food Program has said today it's no longer going to deliver aid into the northern part of Gaza because of the safety situation inside uh, the Strip itself. Uh, w- what is the reason for the slow delay? Is it the security checks of getting in? Is, is it still a security holdup or is it a lack of humanitarian capacity uh, to deliver the aid uh, once it gets in? What, what's your assessment after hearing from people firsthand? So I think it's it's all of the above. The the aid is there. I was able to see uh, a lot of aid that that has been uh, received through Egypt uh, from many many countries, including Canada. Uh, the issue remains the lack of unimpeded, constant, and adequate access into Gaza, but also the security situation in Gaza itself. Uh, humanitarian workers. Uh, and others are, are very much uh, uh, concerned about the uh, lack of uh, safety and protection for the humanitarian workers who are delivering mm. this much-needed food, medicine, and other supplies 
it's also the 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 hurdles that uh, that organizations the un organizations and other international organizations have to go through to deliver this aid into gaza there aren't enough border crossings the few that exist uh, karam shalom and uh, and and rafa and uh, it's simply not enough and it takes too long there's 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 uh, you know the processes uh, and the, the the time that it takes it, it just creates uh, huge backlogs and and we're very of course much concerned with that and i was able to hear from the humanitarian workers on the ground in gaza who came over to to egypt on the egyptian side of rafa to brief me uh, the impact that is had so we are continuing to advocate for unimpeded access for both humanitarian workers as well as uh, aid to go into gaza and once it goes into gaza to have unimpeded uh, access to to all of the population in gaza uh, for example in the north it is even more dire than in the south and the center of gaza so uh just hearing from the from the people on the ground who are doing this every day at, at, in a very very uh, volatile situation is uh, is something to be really concerned about well i i wonder minister what those organizations have said to you about canada's decision to uh pause its funding to unruh because you talk about unimpeded distribution inside gaza itself the aid groups we've spoken to in the wake of this decision have said unruh is essential to that it is the spine and the backbone of the operations inside gaza itself what have you heard from the aid groups in the region about uh, your decision to stop your funding uh, to UNRWA directly? Well, we didn't. As I said, it's a temporary pause pending the results of an investigation. Uh, we know and, and, and recognize the value of UNRWA, its history, its presence on the ground, and its uh, the crucial services it provides to uh, Palestinian civilians, both in Gaza and in the region. uh and we announced a temporary pause on any additional funding pending the investigation and of course we hope this uh, investigation can result in a transparent comprehensive process that gives confidence uh for us to uh, to work to continue to be able to work with anra uh having said that i also met with the world uh, representatives from the world food program and from the uh the the international committee of the red cross and the red crescent family uh ie members of the egyptian red crescent uh many other non uh, uh, international ngos who are doing the work and uh and they are calling for canada to continue to advocate for unimpeded uh, human and consistent and constant uh, access for humanitarian supplies as well as the workers in addition to that they're asking uh, for more border crossings to be opened into gaza uh in addition to a seaport uh, so that again uh, the aid can get in uh, more aid can get in and more uh, more aid can get in and be distributed to more people uh, in gaza the situation is very dire and uh, you know of course canada is is doing everything that we can we were the first western country to provide humanitarian aid to to the civilians in gaza we then increased that by an additional 40 million dollars uh, on top of the 60 million that uh, we initially uh, provided and we'll continue to be there for the people of gaza uh, but but that aid it's not enough for the aid to get to the region it has to get into gaza and we're calling for the authorities to make sure that there is unimpeded access 
both for the aid and also for the humanitarian. Well, well, Minister, while you're calling for that, uh, at the United Nations today, the United States has vetoed uh, a resolution uh, calling for an immediate ceasefire. Uh, Thirteen members of the UN Security Council voted in favor. The UK abstained and the US vetoed it, saying that calling for an immediate ceasefire undermines the negotiations the US is involved in to try to secure the release of the hostages that have been held by Hamas since October 7th. How do you reconcile that? How does the international community reconcile that, um, that the U.S.'s uh, efforts to release the hostages are, are trumping uh, a Security Council um, call for an immediate ceasefire on the humanitarian grounds with the IDF reportedly preparing to move into Rafa if necessary? Well, our position on Rafa is, is clear. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has, has said publicly that Canada opposes uh, any military action or an incursion into Rafa. Uh, because that will result in unimaginable humanitarian uh, casualties. And we are uh, obviously urging, uh, we're urging the Israeli authorities not to uh, militarily intervene in, 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 in Rafa. Uh, and the, the, uh, the, my conversations with, with people on the ground in Gaza providing the humanitarian work has, has, uh, has obviously confirmed that that position they are saying that uh, that campaign will be disastrous and so uh, we are emphasizing the protection of civilians in rafa and and uh, and for israel to take utmost care not to do not to engage in that in, in that military incursion but minister sorry uh, to interrupt but how do how do we get the ceasefire that you say you need though well, if i was not, just about to okay sorry that. go, go right ahead look i mean again our, our position on the ceasefire is clear we we believe that we we need a ceasefire uh, the humanitarian workers have uh, confirmed that for me um a ceasefire will result in more aid getting in and more aid being able to be distributed freely to people who are in desperate, desperate need. And one of the things that, I, that I've heard from the World Food Program in particular, uh, the head of the World Food Program in Gaza, is, is the, the really dire need uh, for food in, uh, in northern Gaza. Uh, I mean, the, the need is, is great everywhere in Gaza, but in northern Gaza it's even more dire and it is you know it is in it, people are in really really desperate shape and and so the fact of the matter is a, a ceasefire will go a long way to to help in 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 the distribution so but how do you get there though minister other, if hamas won't release the hostages and israel won't stop until well, the we, hostages are freed and the u.s vetoes international attempts to to bring pressure through resolutions of the u.n security council how do you get there with these intractable positions so firmly in place well we we believe that the hostages should be released more aid should go in uh humanitarian workers should be should be should be assured of their safety uh even in in the conflict even before a ceasefire uh, humanitarian workers should be given safety guarantees, and we're very much concerned about the high number of deaths and injuries of, of people trying to deliver food and medicine and other supplies to the people of Gaza. You know that that goes against international humanitarian law, and and and, and that has to stop. Uh, I mean, people are, are, are in desperate need of of food, medicine, and water, other essential supplies, and the aid. You know, there's a very high volume of aid now in the region, particularly in in, in Egypt. I've seen it for myself. Mm-hmm. Literally, in in just one spot alone, I was able to see, you know, 700 trucks ready to go in. But you know, unless that access 
the volume increases, then you know we're dealing with a with a really serious situation. And what what I've heard from the World Food Program representatives and others is just how close we are to a to a very catastrophic situation if the access is not improved in the next few days. Minister Ahmed Hussain, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. For the first time since June of last year, Canada's annual inflation rate fell below 3%. New data released by Statistics Canada shows inflation clocking in at 2.9% in January. That's down from 3.4% in December. The largest contribution to the drop, lower year-over-year prices for gasoline. Today's data is raising expectations the Bank of Canada could start cutting benchmark rates in the coming months. Jimmy Jean is the chief economist at Desjardins. Armin Yalnesian is the Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers at the Atkinson Foundation. They join me now. Thank you for, both for joining me. Thanks for having us. Uh, Jimmy, let's start, let's, let's start with your thoughts, Jimmy, on the data released today. What is 2.9%? What does that tell us about Canada's fight against inflation? Well, you know, you, I think it means that, uh, you know, we're back in the 1% to 3% range, and that's the Bank of Canada's operational uh, range. You know, you have uh, a number of provinces. You have three provinces that are seeing uh, their inflation rates below 2%, so below the target. And you actually have eight provinces uh, that have inflation at or below 3%. And in the largest province in Ontario, uh, inflation is now at 2.7%. So, you know, that's one way to look at it. But, uh, you know, when you look at uh, what produces that this inflation, you see a lot of uh, consumer goods, uh, clothing, you see uh, uh, food, which has been a contentious uh, issue. Uh, you know, it went from 11.4% a year ago and now to 3.4%. So things have been going in the right direction. And, you know, monetary policy is working as, as intended. So that's why, you know, the question of rate cuts uh, will come, I think, uh, sooner rather than later. I mean, what's your analysis uh, of today? Well, first of all, affordability is still on everybody's mind because even though things are moving in the right direction in terms of how fast prices are going up, they're still going up. Mm. And in fact, the wages seem to pick up in the last few months, outstripping headline inflation. The cost of gasoline, the cost of shelter, specifically mortgage rates and food are still higher than average wage gains since January of 2020. So people are worse off. And this is now starting to escalate for renters. The biggest single cost increase was mortgage rate costs in the last few years. And that's got a lot to do with interest rates, which is exactly what Premier Ibu was talking about at the top of your show. Okay, I, I want to get to that in just a second. But before we talk shelter, I want to talk food. Because, uh, Jimmy, you, you put the numbers out there. It's moving in the right direction. It's, it's a little bit above 3, 3.4%, I believe, is where it is. How do you explain this big change in food inflation? Because the last I checked, there's still a carbon tax. Galen Weston is still running Loblaw. And yet the rate of food inflation is coming down. What are the inputs that that is changing food prices? Well, we've been expecting food prices to cool uh, just because of the international context. We've seen, uh, you know, internationally traded uh, foodstuff uh, actually declined and, and a while ago. And uh, it was really strange how long it took for uh, Canadian grocery prices to follow that trend. So it seems like we're finally uh, seeing some of that, uh, you know, perhaps the, the, the political pressure 
has also uh, contributed. But, you know, those uh, that kind of food price inflation, that's also consistent with what we've been seeing in the U.S. You know, food was not going to rise uh, for forever. It's still rising uh, to, to our means point. We're not uh, seeing uh, this deflation, uh, outright deflation in grocery prices. But, you know, it's really going in the right direction. And uh, if the uh, international trend is a guide, it should continue that direction. I mean, what's your sense of that on food, right? Because it has become such a big political issue over the past year with everybody sort of picking their pet cause. Is it just the international picture, as Jimmy lays out, that really Canada's coming into alignment with global food prices? I mean, everybody's losing their mind because it's going in this, quote, right direction, but it's still going up. Like to Jimmy's point, there's very few food items that are seeing a a decrease in prices. And usually we see some kind of like... uh, explosion of sales in January because everybody's blown their wad in December. So the stores are very kind to us in January. We'll see what it looks like in February. And frankly, not just food, but what is happening uh, globally right now is maybe higher costs, you know, to ship a container of manufactured goods or even parts uh, for manufactured goods from China now is triple the cost it was a few months ago because of what's happening in the Panama Canal and what's happening in the Suez. And we, we don't know if this is going to escalate. So this is like, yeah, maybe we've got a sweet spot right now, a Goldilocks moment where things are starting to come in the Bank of Canada's target range. Was it because of what the Bank of Canada did? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe there were other forces. This whole idea that, you know, the Bank of Canada's interest rate policy is working I think the jury's still out on that. Well, let's just go go back to the issue you you started with a, a, a minute ago, Armin, and stick with you. And this is the shelter costs, right? Rent is up uh, 7.9%, according to StatsCam. Mortgages are up 27%. And a big input into that, as you heard from Premier Eby, is interest rates. So mm-hmm. in that is factoring into the headline inflation as well as just the shelter inflation. So how do you approach that as a central bank? If obviously interest rates are a key input into those costs going so high. I just want to tell you, David, I wouldn't want to be a central banker these days because it does. It seems like whether you do or whether you don't, you're kind of stuck. If you cut rates right now, you're going to feed price inflation because there'll be more demand on the market. If you keep rates up, you're going to, well, no matter what we do, we're going to see about half of the mortgages that are out on the market need to be refinanced in 2024, 2025. So we've only gone through about half the pain of refinancing and, you know, the rates aren't going to come back down to when those mortgages were first issued. So we're going to see a lot more pain on that front. And when you take a look at all of the factors in the CPI basket, the fastest rising factor, not just in the last year, but in the last four years, when you compare where people were at four years ago in January of 2020, the biggest price increase has been mortgage costs. And right behind it was gasoline. Uh, And who knows what OPEC is going to do. And right behind that, is rents because what happens in the mortgage market cascades into the rental market. It's a really you're between a rock and a hard place as a central banker right now. So, so Jimmy, how do we look look at what's happening on shelter and look at what's happening on housing and on rent and, and factor that into whatever prognostication there may be for what the central bank is going to do? I mean, at what point does Tiff Macklem have to look at this and say monetary policy might be keeping inflation high because of its impact on this specific mm. massive driver? 
Yeah, well, they know about this. I mean, they've known even from the start, this is the standard prescription to get inflation down, that you need to get that inflation, that mechanical inflation effect in the shelter component in order to get that that squeeze uh, that Armin was referring to that produces that uh, those spending cutbacks and that produces that disinflation in other areas. And, you know, what we've seen in 2023 and early 2024 speaks to that process uh, unfolding as, as it was intended. And, uh, you know, we think that by the end of this year, we should be at 2%, even with that stickiness in the shelter component. And by the way, when the Bank of Canada will start cutting interest rates, it will provide relief on that front as well. So I think the Bank of Canada has a number of core measures that, uh, you know, abstract from that influence. They know where to look for in order to understand the uh, impact of their policies, what they can control on inflation. I think all this is uh, working. And the danger here is that it works too much mm. and that the Bank of Canada ends up penalizing investment in particular. And we don't want that. We need a ton of investment in particular in housing. And that's why the Bank of Canada needs to, uh, you know, manage that risk as well of maintaining rates too high for too long. So what's your sense then, Jimmy, uh, just as a final point from you on, on when you think they will start the recalibration? You know, uh, a lot of people are looking to the March uh, decision. Do you think it's more like June? W- when do you think we're going to see some kind of relief from the Bank of Canada on this based on the trajectory of the, the most recent data? Yeah, so I think uh, in March, they will simply open the door. Uh, you know, they've already started saying, well, we're not going to uh, we're unlikely to hike rates uh, further, but now I think they might open the door a little bit further. Uh, April, I think, is uh, in play. Our baseline forecast is is June, but obviously if we have some data that confirms uh, economic weakness or weakness in the job market or further inflation prints that surprise positively, you know, they could easily start going in April. So for now, we say June, but, uh, you know, markets are saying it's, it's about 50-50 between April and June. Uh, Armin, I know you, you say you wouldn't want to be a central banker, but I'm going to ask you to play one on TV. When, when do you think we're going to start seeing any kind of, of, of downward trajectory uh, on rates uh, from Tiff Macklem and the bank? Well, I'm not a betting gal, David, so I'm not going to place my bets on March or June because um, what we are seeing right now globally is potentially more cost pressures from yeah. shipping of manufactured goods and uh, from further like spreading of problems and don't forget 2024 is the year where half the world goes to the vote to to the ballot box to vote in their next leaders and on in every country where there's an election there's an autocrat on the menu and every autocrat is about my country first which only raises costs so I'm certainly not assuming that things are going to turn around because our inflation rate this month is in the uh, 1% to 3% zone. But to Jimmy's point, if they don't reduce rates, they can't do what they just said a few weeks ago, which is it's not our fault that, you know, housing prices are so high. It's demand and supply. Well, like if you're throttling the ability for supply to come on stream, you do have some guilt to bear, I think, that story. It isn't just a matter of cooling the economy. But I wouldn't agree with Jimmy that for sure what the central bank is doing is the reason we are in that sweet spot, 1% to 3%. It is supply. It isn't interest rates. It isn't cooling of demand. People are spending a lot of money on the basics, and it's getting out of reach. Okay, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. We'll check in as we get closer uh, to the next bank decision. Thank you so much, Jimmy Jean and Armin Yalnizian. Thank you for your time today. Thank you.
The Conservative Party is looking to issue another formal summons for the owners of GC Strategies, that IT company at the heart of the ArriveCan controversy. If the owners of the company don't appear, the Conservatives want to see the Sergeant-at-Arms of the House of Commons take them into custody and compel their appearance. The effect of today's motion will be to use the full power of the House of Commons um, to, uh, to have these individuals appear before committee. It is very rare, uh, and it's unfortunate that it's come to this point. But it's essential that we use this tool if these individuals continue to ignore. So we're, we're going to summon them again. And this time, though, there will be the understanding that if they ignore this summons, that there will be consequences. There continue to be ongoing investigations, both uh, external and otherwise, into the contracting process. Uh, it is obvious that uh, the contracting process rules were not followed uh, in this case, and we need to make sure that there is accountability and transparency around that. Okay, it's time to bring in the Tuesday Power Panel. Francoise Boivin is a former NDP MP and a political commentator. James Moore is a senior advisor at Denton's and a former Conservative cabinet minister. Emily Nicola is a columnist with Le Devoir. And here with me in studio, Carlene Varine, a former chief of staff to Liberal cabinet ministers. Hello, gang. Good to see you. Uh, thank you for not having to be compelled to appear on this Tuesday. James, uh, I, I'd like to start with you. You can help me with understanding the Conservative thinking here. Wanting the people behind GC Strategies to testify a committee makes total sense. Wanting the sergeant at arms to go arrest them and put them into custody to bring them there, what do you make of that recommendation or that suggestion and request from the Conservatives? Well, I mean, I think it's a statement of procedure that if everything were to get to that level, that that's sort of an, an authority that they do have. And we saw that exercise in the past. I, I want to say a little more than a decade ago or so that this that this did happen. It was a power that's used. It's extraordinary. I don't imagine at this point that that's likely to happen. But I think that Andrew Scheer, former Speaker of the House, making that statement, I think, should put... I think those at this company uh, on notice that they're expected to be accountable publicly by name, by person before a parliamentary committee for the millions of dollars that that their company received of taxpayers dollars. I think it's it's a measure of accountability. You know, the the uh, I think the public based on the AG report, such as it was, because there were a lot of holes in the AG's report because of the lack of accountability and transparency. I think it shows that the conservatives are, are very serious about getting to the bottom of this, making sure that everything is drawn into the sunlight, and if people aren't going to be cooperative, that they're going to be compelled to be cooperative. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't think it should be too much of a surprise, but I think those certainly at GC strategies should be lawyering up, uh, preparing their public presentation because they have a lot to account for. Carlene, uh, uh, James is right. This has happened. It was 2007, according to uh, our colleague, my colleague, Bill Curry at the Globe and Mail. Carl Heinz Schreiber was brought in handcuffs to testify. That's right. Um, prior to that, it was 1913. I was not here in 1913. A former company president named R.C. Miller was called to testify. What, what, what do you make of this move, though? I mean, there's some negotiations happening behind closed doors at the, the government committee to call them but maybe strip out the sergeant at arms part until a later date. What do you make of this? Well, now that you're telling me that these folks' names are being mentioned in a sentence with Carl Heinz Schreiber, I think that that really does sort of add a layer of, of, of color to, to paint a picture of what's going on here. I don't know who's providing PR advice to um, these folks that are being asked to come to committee that, that aren't being the most cooperative, but I don't think it's helpful to them. I don't think uh, it's helpful to anybody, quite frankly, but the opposition who wants to shine a light on an area of, mm -hmm. uh, of clear failure of the government on this. Um, so will there be some 
behind the scenes machinations to, to, to tweak around the margins of, of this motion or what it might mean, perhaps. But ultimately, I think there's there's probably no question that we will see these folks before our committee. We probably should. The AG's report was pretty damning. Everybody on the liberal side of the government, right up to the prime minister, has been very blunt about the fact that they accept the, the, the findings of the AG, that right. in fact the rules weren't followed and that somebody ought to get to the bottom of it. So uh, I think it's only a matter of time before we see these folks at committee. So, so Francoise, how, how should parliamentarians um, navigate this? So, so Christian Firth and uh, his business partner Darren Anthony, they have testified at committee before. They've been invited back. They say they've been told by their doctors not to come back because of the issues with their mental health, and they say they've been subject to harassment and abuse. And, and all of that aside, there is a police investigation going on. There is an internal CBSA report that's been presented. How do you strike the balance between public accountability and, and the need to like not get in the way of a police investigation, potentially? How, how, do, you, how do you navigate that as a parliamentarian? Well, they can always come. Uh, I'm talking about the two witness. They could yep. always come with some 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 representative who could make sure that they are all right when uh, they they do testify. Um, for parliamentarians, I mean, of course, we want we everybody wants to see the light inside what what exactly happened uh, when the first uh, um, contracts were awarded and, and so on and so forth. I, I know that sometimes the problem here is that so many committees are touching the file for different type of reason, uh, government operation, uh, public accounts, uh, so on and so forth. But, um, you know, I think parliamentarians from every type of, of political parties want to go to the bottom because the public needs answers. And I don't know who else than those owners of DC strategies can give some of the answers of how it happened, when it happened, why, what was their credentials, and so on and so forth. Uh, and if the president of the committee, uh, and James sat with, maybe not with me on some committees, but they can make sure that there is order. And I know that there's lots of partisanship right now. And it seems pretty obvious that it's gone. Sometimes it turns as a circus, but uh, it should never be a reason for a witness not to, to come in front of a, of a committee. So I'm sure that um, the, since it's a minority government, they can work together to yeah. set up some rules to, to, to be, fair to the witness because you want to be fair to the witness but at the same time to go to the bottom of 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 uh, of the truth in in this situation and it goes beyond partisanry uh, political parties liberals as much as ndp as bloc quebecois conservatives need to give the public answers emily uh, what, what are your thoughts on this one Oh, just on the partisanship thing, uh, I think it's, it's really important now, especially if, you know, we know that uh, the two people that need to testify uh, and give the Canadian public as many answers as possible that there's issue about them coming in. Uh, it should be important now more than ever that uh, we stay, you know, clear of that partisan spirit and that everybody's actually just trying to get as much information as possible. Uh, even, you know, the you might be arrested uh, if you don't come. I understand that it's very unusual and that even in that move, uh, because it's uh, a little bit early to make it or to say it, uh, there's, sure, there's pressure in there, but but there might also be theatrics. So that's an indication that, you know, theatrics might be a play. And just just to be, 
to be fair as well, you know, those are clips that are playing obviously on social media. The, 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 the attention, the, the goal here is also to get people to think that, you know, there's some, their money was stolen from them and that, you know, the, the Canadian government is corrupt. That's the word that was used, uh, by Pierre Poliev, you know, the word, the word corrupt. Uh, obviously there's a lot of the decisions that were made at, uh, can around the ArriveCan file that was done by public service as well. So it really shouldn't be that much of a partisan issue, I think. Um, but if we go down that road with this kind of uh, people as a source of information, uh, we might not actually be serving the Canadian public that well. And so that's just a call for refraining from that, <laughs> perhaps now more Good than luck. ever. And we'll see. We'll see if exactly. We'll see if I get any luck in this. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. But, you know, James, I, I can understand the focus on GC strategies because they got the money, them and their subcontractors, uh, an indeterminate amount in total. But, you know, uh, roughly 20 to $25 million, I think we can say for sure they got on ArriveCan. But they didn't sign the contracts and issue the contracts, right? There are a couple of suspended civil servants right now who appear to have played a role in all of this. And I, I just wonder, mm-hmm. why aren't they being asked to come to committee uh, post-Auditor General's report? Because they're, you know, there's getting the contract, but someone's got to issue it and approve it in the first place. And it seems like that's a good place to put some focus, too. Oh, I imagine they will be, and I imagine the witness list will be longer than that. Uh, and I, I believe this is the this is the beginning of the beginning, let alone the beginning uh, of the end. So I think there's going to be lots of conversation about this. But to the first principle, though, about GC strategies, why why do you start with them? Well, because they were named by the Auditor General; they were the focal point. So that's the 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 door through which all these questions will be pushed in the beginning. But I mean, for, with regard to this company, though, if they were operating in good faith. And if they have anything like proper management structure and and governance and bookkeeping uh, in front of them, if they were abiding by the contract that they signed and they're proud of the products that they're responsible for, then I would think that there should be no hesitation on their side to come before a committee and come before anybody with proper legal advice. And to, t- and to tell their story about what they tried to achieve, what they tried to contribute to the fight against, uh, you know, uh, the the, uh, the barriers to reopening the economy post-COVID and all that. So if, if any of those things aren't true, that they weren't acting in good faith, they weren't abiding by their contract, they weren't operating lawfully or they weren't, uh, they didn't have appropriate structure of governance and accountability, well, then there's your next set of questions. So I, I think they're the first witness to come on a building block of accountability measures and witnesses that will come before the committee to try to sort of smoke out and bring into the sunlight all the dynamics of this pretty shady, um, pretty shady uh, contract. You know, Carly, we've seen how these committees can go. And if I was a lawyer and uh, I had a client with potential criminal liability or the possibility of, we know there's a police investigation, I'm not sure I'd want them to go <laughs> sit sit in any parliamentary committee and take any questions from any politician. You know, they, this is going to yeah. be an obstacle to overcome. Yeah. Well, certainly, and, and you, talk, you talked before about, um, you know, how a police investigation can exist side by side with a parliamentary investigation. And, and that's certainly part of what's likely weighing on some of these folks. But at the end of the day, I, I suspect after seeing the press conference today held by um, the Conservative MPs that they're probably not willing to let this one go. Um, that, as, as James alluded to, this is part one of you know, likely a large number of parts of this investigation. I think that they have probably hit on something here that Canadians are, um, you know, quite rightly concerned about over the course of the pandemic. And it wasn't so long ago that Canadians don't remember it very vividly. It was a it was mm. a time when governments across the country and around the world had to make a series of incredibly difficult, challenging 
decisions and policy moves um, with very little information. And there was a ton of pressure on our civil servants in departments across the federal bureaucracy to get things done. And there's no doubt that, that this app was probably one of those things in order to keep our economy moving and keep our borders safe. Um, and so, you know, to that extent, you can sort of understand how maybe some oversight was um, uh, was missing, uh, but it doesn't sound from the AG's report like this level of flawed process was by any means acceptable. That being said, I think if the shoe was on the other foot or the situation were reversed and we were in the middle of this crisis and the bureaucratic process had taken two years to produce a service like this to allow our borders to function, <laughs> there also would have been cries of outrage from the other side. So. Right, but Francois, just as a final point on that, Car Carlene is right in that she says the Auditor General concedes it was a busy time, but even in the other departments, nothing like this was going on. This is a CBSA, arrive can specific sort of thing. So, so given that and sort of the unique flavor of this one, do you think they'll end up uh, having to send the sergeant at arms after these guys? Uh, I mean, I, I'm just picturing uh, the, the, the scene. But you know what? I, I think it, that's all verbal. And uh, I think it's James who alluded to it, to it. It's part of the message. I was listening to Michael Barrett and, and uh, Andrew Shear making them their kind of plea through the media uh, to the, the two witnesses. If you don't come voluntarily, here's what's going to happen. And we need a decision from the committee because the committee has to recognize that they have not come. They, they disobeyed kind of an order of the committee to appear in front of them. And then it goes to the House. And it was just, I mean, nothing reads uh, co congeniality as all the threats that we heard from the two conservatives doing the press conference. I mean, it was just not um, for the good of the nation and to know what is behind. It, it was attacking the NDP. You want the NDP on side. Explain why it's so important to have those two witnesses. I'm with you. I agree with you. But don't attack me in the process and then come to me and say, are you going to support our motion? I mean, it, it gives the tone. It sends the tone. So when Emily said, we hope that they will proceed in a, in, in a good old-fashioned way, a fact-finding type of, uh, of committee to see exactly what happened, maybe nobody had a criminal mind, maybe somebody was just quick and decided that, hey, here's a good way to make good money fast. Nobody knows anything about anything. And then they're over their head and, and so on and so forth. Who knows? We don't know yet. But it's the tone. And imagine if a sergeant in arm go and get those two witnesses. When I was a lawyer in court, believe you me, to force a witness was not ever the, way, the best way to get that witness to testify to the things that I wanted to hear because uh, you don't have a willing uh, witness. But uh, we'll see how it unfolds. My, my colleague Aaron Weary, just as a final point of this, has just sent a note saying that Carl Heinz Schreiber had to be compelled through a warrant because at the time he was incarcerated at the Toronto West Detention Center. The warrant <laughs> was necessary to bring him to Parliament so that to he could bring testify. Him. So slightly different context, at least in the fine print of that. Okay. All right. As a good final point, we've got to leave it there. Thanks so much, gang. I th thank the Power Panel, Francois Bovan, James Moore, Emily Nicola, and Carly and Brian. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.